stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and also here is Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. Now, coming up this week, we'll be finding out how scientists have uncovered the chemical switch that triggers some cancers to spread around the body. How do they do it? Also, researchers have sussed out where baby turtles go after they take to the sea for the first time, and also how a brain scan has revealed that people with anorexia taste things differently, which might explain why they developed the condition in the first place. And that's all on the way. And also this week, we're looking at the next generation of smart materials, including a flexible display that rewrites itself at the press of a button. And it's nothing like the display in your laptop screen. You could throw this onto the other side of the room, it would not break. Plus, we'll also be hearing how to heal broken bones and speed up repair using new implantable polymers and ceramics. And that's all on the way. And in this week's question of the week, we're going to get to the bottom of an interesting maritime conundrum about seashells on the seashore. And why is it that we hear the sounds of waves when you put one to your ear? Or can you? And uh, continuing our smart materials theme, we'll also be hearing from scientist Ulrich Steiner about how Teflon and other non-stick surfaces work. And in kitchen science, we'll be discovering how breathable fabrics like Gore-Tex actually work. Yes, I'm kind of worried about that. So. Well, you're worried. How do you feel about it, Alex? I'm going to get drenched. <laughs> And if you'd like to have a go at this week's experiment, you need a glass of water and a handkerchief. Simple as that. And also, remember, if you have any science questions for us or you'd like to talk about new materials, then do get in touch. And, of course, you can always email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Hello, well, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist. And an interesting thing to kick off with, because I know, Helen, you're very concerned about environmental issues, and it turns out that so are people in India, because a lot of Hindu festivals are approaching, and Greenpeace India are warning that with the, a lot of these Hindu festivals, people like to immerse things in water, because that's what they do. And it turns out it's in, at risk of causing an environmental catastrophe. Um, it, uh, there's a quote here from Ramapati Kumar, who's from Greenpeace India, and says, the commercialisation of holy festivals has led to people wanting to put bigger and brighter idols into the water, and they're no, happy, they're no longer happy with the ones that are made from eco-friendly materials. And so traditionally, where they were made from clay and mud and vegetable-based dyes, we used to paint them. Now it's more like a competition to enhance households and the big corporates who sponsor them and as a result this is leading to things like toxic heavy metals lead mercury chromium and also some cancer causing dyes and also plaster that depletes the water of oxygen being used in these i've actually seen some of these things and this could they're saying this could have a major problem because there there is 1.1 billion people in india 80 percent of them are hindus and this could have a major issue it's possible yeah i mean i i've seen actually some uh, hindu statues when i was diving in in uh, in mauritius actually and there's a hindu population there and and i just got swimming along lots of lovely fish and suddenly there was this tiny little green person sitting on the bottom (laughs) of the sea it was i was quite taken aback but it was quite beautiful and i think one of those was uh, maybe one of these older more environmentally friendly ones but um let's hope that they don't all go to plastics and and nasty paints but while we're talking about things from the sea which i tend to not be able to avoid as i'm sure you know um this is uh, for decades there has been a wonderful mystery that has baffled marine biologists and had us all scratching our heads and the question is um where do baby sea turtles go now, adult sea turtles, as their name suggests, live their lives out at sea, with females um, returning to land to lay their eggs on beaches. And after the tiny baby turtles have hatched and crawled down the beach, fought their way through the pounding surf and made their way back out to sea, 
um, they completely disappear into that wide blue ocean. And for a long time, we've had absolutely no idea at all where they go or what they do until they turn up about five years later, um, closer to shore, and they're much, much bigger than they were when they left. Um, well, now it's, uh, we seem to have solved at least part of this puzzle. Um, and that's thanks to a team of scientists from the Archie Carr Centre for Sea, sea Turtle Research in Florida. And they've been studying green turtles from the Bahamas, um, those lovely islands in the Caribbean. So that's not bad. Pretty good place to go and study. What, Almost what? as bad as you. Yes, yes. <laughs> your PhD well, being you know, paid to go to wonderful places Absolutely. The you have to try, try your best. But uh, these researchers went, went to the Bahamas and took samples of the hard shells from these green turtles um, and analysed them for the presence of particular isotopes of carbon and nitrogen. Now, most elements have several different isotopes that occur naturally. And each isotope has a slightly different number of neutrons, which gives each isotope a slightly different atomic mass so that's the technical bit and basically different types of plants and animals naturally take up different amounts of these various isotopes leaving a kind of fingerprint if you like and if you read that isotope fingerprint um, in things like turtles you can understand what kind of food whether that's plants or different types of animals that they were feeding on so you can basically trace where they've gone if you know where that natural fingerprint is around the world. Absolutely, that's it, exactly. And that's just what they've done for these green turtles. And they've shown, which is kind of quite remarkable, that we thought these creatures, the green turtles in particular, were vegetarian, just eating things like sea grasses and seaweeds. But in fact, what it turns out is that they disappear off to sea and become carnivorous. When they're out there in the deeper oceans, they eat jellyfish and other types of marine animals like squid and things like that. Um, before coming back in shallow waters, going back to their vegetarian ways and um, and reproducing in those shallow waters so it's pretty cool really it's, it's a really neat thing about this type of isotope study is it can it, it can be applied to all sorts of other animals because you can take feathers and skin and fish scales and bones and really sort of peer into this part of an animal's life that before was a complete and utter mystery to us yes and researchers from the university of durham earlier this year used a similar trick to work out how birds migrate because birds shed their feathers and then lay down new feathers when they migrate. And this means that you can use the feathers that they've got on them when they first arrive and then start to shed them as an index of where they've just come from because they incorporate into their feathers whatever they've had in the diet. And the diet, of course, has got the chemical fingerprint, the isotope fingerprint that you were mentioning from yeah, where they've come from. And they really were using the isotope strontium to mm, track bird movements. All sorts of things and previously no one actually knew. We just had sort of hearsay as to how yeah. these birds got around and where they went and over what time course. And oh. now we have a, a good idea. We're talking about things travelling. Really interesting study done this week in the journal Nature by a guy called Robert Weinberg and his colleagues. They're at MIT and they've been looking at how cancer spreads around the body. And in particular, they were focusing on something called microRNA. These tiny sequences of genetic material that crop up inside the nucleus of every cell. So our cells have DNA, which contains our genes. And then there's these additional pieces of genetic material which are used, we think, to regulate the activity of, the, of our genes. And this group wanted to know how they affect the behaviour of cancers. So they compared cancers and normal tissue, and they also looked at cancers which had spread, metastasized around the body, and cancers that hadn't spread. And they were looking specifically at the levels of 29 different microRNAs. And one of them one called microRNA-10b, was at very high levels in the cancers that had spread, but not in the ones that hadn't. And they thought, that's very interesting, I wonder what role this might play. So they did some experiments where they increased the level of this microRNA in cancer cells that they then injected into mice, and they found that it made the cancer spread very fast around the mouse body. 
And so then they said, well, this obviously has a role to play. Which genes could it be affecting? So they used a computer program to look for potential genetic targets that this microRNA might be switching on or off. And they found one. And it's a gene called HOXD10. And this is a clever gene because it acts a bit like a cellular handbrake. It locks cells in position and stops them going AWOL. And what they found is that during development, when the embryo is putting itself together, you want cells to be able to move around. So you make this microRNA which turns off this cellular handbrake and lets cells wander around because you want cells to be able to find their way to the right places during development. But when you become an adult, you want to fix the cells. So the microRNA gets turned off, HOXD10, this gene, turns on, locks the cells in position, everyone's happy. But the problem is, when you get a cancer, it switches this gene back on again. And this starts to make the cells more mobile, and this is how they think you begin to, to, to make them metastasize. And so this is a very important target because we might be able to make a drug that could block this and stop the cells moving. So do we have any progress towards that? Or is this really the first stage in understanding it? And then maybe later we can develop some treatments kind of from that? Well, it suggests that if you either increase the level of the HOXD10 gene, which is your cellular handbrake, or switch down the level of this microRNA 10B, you might be able to stop cells moving. And so that's going to be a really exciting area of research, I think, pretty soon. Excellent. Sounds very promising indeed. I'm going to take us back to the natural world again and uh, think about how in these days of globalisation, international travel and exploration, it's really quite hard to imagine that there are still creatures out there that we haven't ever seen before. So it comes as a wonderful surprise, I think, that scientists have just uncovered a treasure trove of 11 new species in a mysterious and remote part of the central of central Vietnam known as the Green Corridor. It's part of an expedition and a conservation project run by WWF, the Worldwide Fund H- Haven't you just come back from... I've just come back from Vietnam, that's right. You weren't in this I wasn't in the green corridor, no, I was on the coast actually. So, But it did kind of bring to mind the, the, also, the wonderful creatures that live in that country. I was looking mostly at seahorses. Um, but uh, they've discovered uh, 11 new species, including a snake, which they've called the white-lipped keelback, which has got a beautiful um, pale line down, running down its belly. Um, some butterflies, four new orchids, and a type of aspidistra, which you might normally find in your house. Um, but this one has got an almost completely black flowers. So it's rather beautiful. It's intriguing to think that you know, we reckon we know most of the things about the Earth, but you don't have to go very far and look very hard to find a whole wealth of new things. I mean, that's absolutely true. And I think that's what's quite wonderful about this, that if you do look in the right places. And one reason we think that this particular part of the world is kind of prone to having so many species is that these, this mountain range known as the Ammonites, which run sort of north-south through, through that very long, thin uh, country. Uh, Vietnam is very long and thin. Um, it crosses over the temperate and the, the sort of tropical zone. So you've got this meeting of two different types of habitat, if you like. Which is a sort of natural boost to the number of creatures that you might find there. So, if you want to find any more, it's a place to go. It's also the place to go and find a soala, which is a rare species of wild cattle, which sounds rather wonderful, um, roaming around in the forests that's only discovered in 1992. Wow, so Vietnam's the place to go. That's it. But you mustn't fly there because that's bad for the environment. Uh, to finish up this week, an uh, interesting study this week, which has been carried up by two people, Walter Kay and Angela Wagner. They're at Pittsburgh University over in the States, and they've been brain scanning people who have anorexia. And surprisingly, no one's actually done what they've done, which is to take 16 healthy women and 16 women who have anorexia or have recovered from anorexia and put them in a brain scanner and then put food items, in this case they used sugary water and just plain water, into their mouth, squirt it in a tube, and see what patterns you see in their brain. And the idea is, 
Is there a difference between the two? Could this be used to explain why people who have anorexia have the symptoms and the behaviours that they do? And it shocked me to read in this paper that anorexia is actually the psychiatric condition that has the highest rate of death out of all psychiatric conditions, which is staggering. So it's very important that we get to the bottom of why it happens. And the results are really striking. What they found was there's an area of the brain called the insular cortex, which in normal people lights up when you have the pleasant stimulus of the sugary water put in the mouth. And in the anorexics, it didn't light up, or it didn't light up half as much as it did in the people that were healthy. So they're not really enjoying it as much as, as perhaps we are, is that the case? That's right. And when they asked the people um, to rate how pleasant they found the rewarding sensation of having the sugary water in their mouth. The normal people all said it was very pleasant. The anorexics were much less sure about it. But even if some anorexics said they thought it was a pleasant stimulus, their, their brain still registered low levels of activity. And if you look at what this bit of the brain does, we think it's important in processing how the value of certain foods might affect your body. And the evidence for that is that if you look at animals that have got damage in this part of the brain, they don't, for instance, stop eating when they're full. They don't learn that they're full and they don't learn not to eat things that might make them sick. So it seems to have some kind of important effect in translating food you take in to interpreting how that's going to be good for you. And so what we think is that if this is not switching on in the right way, it might mean that anorexics, for some reason, don't find the eating behaviour pleasurable in the same way as a normal person would. And so it might give us some clues as to a better way to try and get to the bottom of it. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. It's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. This week we're talking about smart materials. In a little while we'll be finding out about a new kind of Teflon material so slippery that not even sticky honey will stick to a spoon and we'll be demonstrating it here in the studio with Ulrich Steiner. We'll also be finding out how you can implant new materials into the body to heal up broken bones and why newspapers could become a thing of the past because scientists have come up with a new kind of plastic which will rewrite at the press of a button. And now it's time for this, the first part of this week's Kitchen Science. We sent Ben and Dave out to Essex to teach you a new party trick using just a hanky and a glass of water. Welcome to Kitchen Science. I'm here in King Edward VI Grammar School in Chelsford. I'm here with Dave Ansell. Hi there. And I'm also here with Alex. Hello. And I'm here with Richard. Hello. Today, Dave told me we were going to see something about how waterproof a handkerchief is. Can you explain yourself, Dave? Well, for this experiment, all you need is a glass, some water and a handkerchief. So this should be something that pretty much everyone will have at home? I would hope so, yes. It doesn't have to be a handkerchief. Any piece of cotton fabric will do. Bit of shirt, tea towel, whatever you like. OK. What do you think we're going to do here? Do you have tea towels at home? Yes, lots. And do you think they're waterproof? No. So you wouldn't trust them to you know, protect you from an oncoming onslaught of water? Definitely not, no. Would you? If it was like massive and folded over quite a lot. OK, well, we'll have to see what Dave has planned for you, I think. So, Dave, what are we doing? Alex, what I'd like you to do is take this glass and fill it right to the top with water. So the glass is now full right to the brim of water. Now, Richard, what I'd like you to do is take this handkerchief and stretch it really tight over the top of the glass. Now, this is actually my handkerchief. It's a monograph. The handkerchief's got a B in the far corner. Can you describe what's going on? The handkerchief has gone all wet on the outside now. I just lowered the handkerchief over and then pressed down on the sides to make sure it was tight. And it's made sort of quite a good seal across the top there, Dave, but I'm still not quite sure what you're getting at. So what I'm going to want you to do when we come back, Richard, is pick up the glass, turn it upside down and put it over the top of Alex's head. Yes, I'm kind of worried about that. Well, you're worried. How do you feel about it, Alex? I'm going to get drenched. (laughs) So 
while you're at home, you may as well do this. You've all got water, you've all got glasses, you've probably all got some kind of cotton. Get a glass, fill it right to the brim, stretch something like a tea towel or a handkerchief right across the top, really tight across the top, and then turn it upside down above a loved one's head. And if you're not all too soaking wet to come back, we'll see you later on in the show. <laughs> Sounds good. Ben and Dave will be revealing if you get soaked or not later on in the show. Now, although Kat isn't here with us in the studio today, she couldn't keep away from us because she loves us so much. And uh, she's actually down at the National Cancer Research Institute Conference, which is in Birmingham. Hi, Kat. Hello. It's very sunny here. It, blimey. Okay. That makes a change. Yeah. It's, it's, it's supposed <laughs> to be grim up north, isn't it? Not too grim, no, but it's, uh, it's certainly fascinating here. So what's this conference all about? Well, this is the biggest cancer conference in the UK, and this year they're hoping to get probably nearly 2,000 people along, and that's scientists, doctors, patients from all around the world, basically trying to get to grips with the latest in cancer research. So we've got um, people talking about you know, new advances in drugs and drug development. just spoke to a really fascinating guy called Greg Verdine, who's giving a talk tomorrow, and he's basically developing an entirely new type of drug uh, which which could really revolutionise cancer treatments. Very exciting stuff. Now, what's this story which is all about how breast cancer spreads around the body? Well, um, it's not so much that. The, uh, the story I want to talk about is um, some stats that have come out, because obviously it's uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October. And the key thing is, you know, we're learning all about the genes that are involved in breast cancer and the new treatments. But there's so many things that women can actually do to prevent uh, breast cancer themselves and one of our uh, one of Cancer Research UK's epidemiologists you know the stats guys uh, this guy Professor Max Parkin he's actually calculated that um, thousands of cases of breast cancer could be prevented so it's probably nearly 6,000 cases could be prevented every year by women changing their lifestyles. And what sorts of lifestyle changes are they advocating to get that benefit because that's a lot of people isn't it? It's a lot of women. I mean, for example, we know that prolonged use of HRT, so that's using it for you know, a number of years, does increase your risk of breast cancer. So if the number of women taking HRT without real clinical need drops, then you could save around 2,000 cases of breast cancer every year. Um, by reducing obesity, you could prevent another like, 1,800 cases every year. By you know, doing a bit of exercise, getting you half an hour a day, five days a week, you could actually prevent more than 1,000 cases a year. So it's you know, pretty significant and stuff. And would those factors have any impact on other cancers as well? So therefore, could the numbers in reality be even higher? Well, exactly. This is just to do with breast cancer. But we know, for example, that being uh, overweight can increase your risk of other types of cancer, like womb cancer, bowel cancer. Getting a bit physical, that can help cut your risk of many types of cancer. And you know, keeping a healthy body weight is really good for that. And also cutting down on the amount of alcohol you drink, too. That can be, a, can be pretty handy. So it's, uh, it's really a, a double-edged thing here. We're finding out about the latest in cancer treatments and, you know, really getting to n- the nuts and bolts of what's wrong in cancer. And then thinking about prevention. There's going to be an interesting debate tonight um, with some people from Breast Cancer Care talking about whether we should be using maybe pills. There are some tablets that can prevent breast cancer or whether we should be looking to changing lifestyles to try and achieve this. And looking forward towards the rest of the week, what are the other hotspots you've got your eye on that you'll be focusing in on? Well, there's a, a really exciting lecture about pancreatic cancer coming up on Tuesday, which is a, a guy called David Tuverson, who's from Cambridge. And uh, he's probably one of the best people in the world at the moment working in pancreatic cancer, which is a cancer that has a really terrible survival rate. It's really very low. So it's going to be interesting to see if People really feel that they're making progress in pancreatic cancer and how we might go forward with that. 
And also there's some interesting um, seminars and symposia involving patients looking at more and more people are surviving cancer. So what are the issues that they have to deal with and how can you go forward, you know, trying to live with cancer maybe as a more chronic disease rather than something that, that doesn't do you very good at all. Thank you very much, Kat. Cheers, I'll see you soon. See you soon. Katarn is reporting from the NCRI conference in Birmingham and I suspect she'll return next week with lots and lots of other exciting things for us. Uh, it turns out also we've heard from Dodger who wants to know, Kat, if you're married or otherwise taken because he says you sound absolutely yummy. I've got one here as well. Cat's got a real fan club going here. What's I've got here? Um, it's Dave who says uh, he has the biggest crush on Cat. Being from the US, he finds her accent incredibly attractive. What's wrong with mine? I'm sure you get equal levels of fan mail, but we have to keep it back because otherwise you'd be crushed under the weight, Helen. I've Aww. got a question here from Dora, uh, Dora Farfan, who says, can I water my houseplants with seawater? Well, um, unless your, sea- your houseplants are a particular type of... Uh, plant that loves to be uh, in the sea or in very salty waters which are called xerophytic plants basically then no um, because what you're doing is you're adding far too much salt the, plant, the roots of plants are adapted to only a certain level of, of um, salts if you like for a better word of um, any kind of um, uh, ions that are in the water around them and they're only able to take up water at a certain concentration if that becomes much more concentrated the osmotic pressures go crazy and they are unable to take up any more water so unless you're growing seaweeds, <laughs> sea grasses um, or sort of salt marsh plants then I think stick to fresh water. Now, in the studio with us today, we've got Ulrich Steiner. He's from the Thin Films and Interfaces Group at Cambridge University. Sounds like the reverse of widescreen TV, Ulrich. But you're actually here to talk about some exciting new materials you're working on, which is a fancy new form of Teflon, which is ultra-slippery. So tell us about that. Well, the material itself is actually not so special. It's just Teflon. Uh, What's different is uh, the way how we uh, make the coating um, normal Teflon is a rather smooth coating, and we know uh, materials don't stick to it. And if one uh, changes the way how one puts down the coating, uh, it becomes even more slippery or even more hydrophobic. So well, let's look at Teflon to start with. Why is that slippery? Um, it's... Uh, materials don't stick to it, and that has to do with the fact that uh, the um, it has a very low uh, surface energy. Um, materials that have high surface energy, these are materials, uh, uh, other materials would stick to, water would stick to it, or whatever else you put on it. Teflon doesn't like to be covered by any other material, and that's why it doesn't stick to it. And one interesting thing that's always going around on, on these email lists is sort of 101 questions you never know the answer to. And one of them is, well, if Teflon's so unsticky, how do you stick it to the pan? Um, yeah, that's actually a good one. Uh, you um, need to do a, um, a, a number of different steps, which uh, DuPont, uh, that's the company in the U.S. that makes Teflon, has a, a detailed protocol. So you first need to make the material rough, so you basically sandplast it to make it rough. Then you need to put a layer of a material down, a so-called primer, um, uh, which uh, to which the Teflon will stick. Now, I can't tell you what the primer is about because uh, uh, DuPont will not tell me what it is. So you'll just have to use and uh, they have worked out how this all goes. So it's not just a flippant question. There is actually quite a lot of thought that has to go into solving that problem. Oh, yes, absolutely, because Teflon doesn't stick to things, so it also doesn't stick to the surface you want to put it down on. So that's, uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's a technological challenge, and, of course, people have worked that out and uh, know how to do it. And the step forward that you're now exploring, what's that? Um, well, this is an effect that is known for a long time, and uh, it's also known from plants, for example, and also animals. Uh, these there are surfaces that are called superhydrophobic. Uh, these are surfaces that water doesn't stick to at all. So if you put a drop of water down on a surface like this, uh, it forms nearly a, f- a perfect pearl-like 
sphere. And uh, for example, um, the lotus plant, the, the leaves of the lotus plants have that property and that's why this effect is also called lotus effect. But you can also observe it in the garden. If you go out uh, uh, in the morning, you see some of the drops, uh, the water uh, is, uh, is just sliding off these plants. And uh, this comes from the fact that these uh, waters have a rough surface. They have a certain surface texture. So they've got sort of anatomical Teflon on the leaf. So what is the leaf doing? If you zoom in on the surface, you're well, saying it's rough. What is it doing to repel water in that way? And why right. should a rough surface, paradoxically, repel water like that? Um, the leaf, the surface of the leaf has small wax, wax, wax structures and wax needles. And um, the uh, water sits on top of these needles and actually doesn't really touch the surface of the, uh, the, the, the plant itself, the surface of the leaf itself. And um, so the the plants and also some of the animals, like butterflies, for example, uh, have these surfaces to keep clean. And it's thought that uh, they uh, do that in order to prevent uh, being infected from spores and so on. Um, and so the step forward that we did is we said, well, let's try and copy nature. Uh, let's try to make these structures not from uh, natural materials, but from something that we are more used to. And uh, we chose to use Teflon. So how how do you apply your surface? You can put it on anything, can you, and make it really slippery? Um, what we do is we essentially do exactly the same thing that uh, people do when they coat a Teflon frying pan. So we are following all the steps uh, that uh, the manufacturer of Teflon tells us we have to do. The, there are two little tricks that we play, um, which make the uh, top coating then porous. Uh, so one of the tricks is we add something in, we add small particles in, and these particles burn away during the treatment of the, uh, um, of the, of the surface. And that making makes it the, rough. Making the, uh, the surface rough. And the uh, second thing is a, a certain spray technology. We spray it on in a way that the uh, top surface stays rough in the end. So can we see it working? I saw well, you playing around with a spoon earlier, yes, so I, I, I know you have brought something to I show. I have it. a spoon here. Unfortunately, you can't see it through the radio, which is a pity. Uh, it's a, uh, a spoon that I covered. I have a drop of water on it, and you can see if you move the spoon around that this water just moves around with it. It doesn't stick to it at and, all. And if you tip that water off, yes. it'll just fall? It just oh, oh, my God. You know when... I'll just describe this people at home when you tip something off of a surface off of a spoon or something it grips and adopts some of the shape of the surface it's just yep. flowed from doesn't it well i've just seen this come off as a perfect droplet from the spoon it, 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 it was quite beautiful actually it's kind yeah. of this glass um bead really almost uh, just phenomenal. sitting on top of the spoon and yeah. moving independently it's so amazing. if you were to dip that in something really sticky yep. honey what would happen well the honey would also just beat up make a drop and if you uh, turn it it will also just roll off the uh the like spoon water I, like water slower than water because honey is slower but it will eventually completely leave the spoon nothing will stay behind on the spoon also if you put a powder on it just some dirt and uh, you then add some water onto it uh the water will just move that uh that uh, piece of dirt off at that surface and I think I demonstrated this just before the show to uh, to one of the two. Yeah, we were, we had chocolate cake. <laughs> we, <laughs> up some we cleaned cleaned the. Uh, okay, so chocolate cake aside, of and uh, speaking of which, uh, my wife bakes us a cake each week, and I had a suggestion this week we should have a cake of the week as well as question of the week. That's coming up later. But cake of the week this week is a wonderful, is a rather wonderful fridge cake, chocolate and digestive biscuits, very agreeable. Um, it's got raisins in it too, just in case it's, anyone's been impatient. Very nice. It's We've really had about good. three bits each. But what would be the applications of this technology, Uri? 
Um, we are still trying to work this out, but um, uh, evident things are, of course, surfaces that are easy to clean that could be uh, both in the household, but it could also be for industrial applications, like, for example, machine parts that are not easily accessible, and then you can uh, clean it by just uh, spraying water over it. What about clothing? Could you decorate clothing with a similar technique so that furniture, shoes, clothing needs less care, needs less washing? Well, that's not one of the things we're thinking along, because I think that's... Uh, fibers, I think, could be made more easily self-cleaning. Another thing would be uh, uh, in the medical um, or uh, biomedical technology, surfaces that um, where dirt doesn't stick to are easy to clean. They're more hygienic. Uh, Does that be... include bacteria? Because you're saying dirt yeah. can't stick. If bacteria yeah. can't stick, I'm thinking of things you want to implant in the body. We're talking about prosthetics and biomaterials this week as well. Uh, could this be a very good sort of bacterial shunning surface so that prostheses can't get infected, hip replacements can't get infected? I know too little about about this to say yes or no, uh, I would think for implants it's probably not that good because, uh, um, uh, yeah, they have rather complicated uh, surface requirements. I was thinking more in terms of things like syringe needles and, uh, and um, materials that uh, you uh, use uh, in, in a medical environment and that need to be cleaned, easily cleanable, uh, need to be hygienic these kind of things. I was there I was thinking he was going to say they were so slippery they just slide in without you feeling them and it doesn't hurt. But anyway, thank you very much. That's Ulrich Stein. He's from the Thin Films and Interfaces Group at Cambridge University with an amazing new application of Teflon which is so slippery that water just flies off it like a beautiful pearly drop. Now, if you listen carefully, you'll notice that here in The Naked Scientist, we are surrounded by paper most of the time. We usually try not to make you hear. Um, but similarly, in offices all around the country, incredible amounts of paper are thrown away on a daily basis. I'd just like to point out, I take all my paper home to recycle. And that is what happens as well, um, you know, up and down the country. But maybe a better solution would be to remove the need to use all this paper in the first place and do away with all those hours spent photocopying and all those pages that come out of the uh, printers from our computers. But So we sent Azzy Kateri to find out about the design and uses of plastic electronics and e-link. E-ink. I've come to Cambridge University's Cavendish Labs and I'm joined by Professor Henning Seringaus, who is a founder and the chief scientist of a company called Plastic Logic. Now, Professor Seringaus, what exactly is Plastic Logic? Plastic Logic is a little startup company in Cambridge that makes plastic electronics. So if you imagine your plastic bag that you use to do your shopping, that's a, a very uninteresting thing and doesn't do much. But you can make electronic devices such as transistors, light-emitting diodes, solar cells, using these plastic materials in the same way as you would use silicon for conventional electronics. And Plastic Logic is a company that's exploiting this materials research for displays. But how do you make plastic do the things that silicon does. If you imagine a normal plastic material is made out of long-chain organic molecules, and depending on the way the atoms are arranged with respect to each other, that determines what electronic properties it has. You can make it such that it's completely insulating. You can make it such that it's conducting, like gold or copper, but you can also have semiconductors. So how do these flexible plastic displays actually work? The core of the technology is the ability to make plastic transistors using a plastic uh, semiconductor. And so what you need for a flexible display is lots of transistors on a flexible substrate. Plastic Logic uses PET, which is the material from which Coke bottles are made, as a substrate. And then it deposits an array of transistors onto that substrate and can be up to a million transistors. And then you put that together with a display medium 
The display medium consists of solid capsules that are filled with a liquid. And inside the liquid there are colored particles. Some of them are white, some of them are black. And the white ones are negatively charged and the black ones are positively charged. So when you apply a voltage, then the white ones might go to the top or the black ones might go to the top. And whether you get white or black, that's determined by the signal that the transistor underneath applies to that display medium. And this is how you can build up an image. And then you can make this flexible display. And if you talk to my colleague Simon Jones, he can tell you about all the wonderful things that you can do with them. I'm Simon Jones, and I'm responsible for product development at Plastic Logic. Now, can I just ask you to explain what you've got here? Yes, what I've got here is a couple of examples to show you. One is a thin sheet of plastic, which I'm bending in my hands here, but it's a real display. And it's nothing like the display in your laptop screen. You could throw this onto the other side of the room, it would not break. If you then integrate a display like this with some basic electronics, you can make a reading device. And this is the other demonstrator I've got here. And this screen is very unusual because it looks so much like paper. You can look at it from any angle and read it, which you can't do with a laptop screen, and only uses battery power when you change what's on the screen. It's incredibly power efficient. So are you in a way competing with already existing display units that are incorporated into mobile phones and into laptops? No, we're not competing. We are um, enabling a brand new kind of consumer activity, which is comfortable digital reading. If we're competing with anything, we're competing with paper. And we're seeking to replace the amount of paper that people print and carry around with them. Independent research has shown that it um, generates about three kilograms of CO2 to get the average paperback book into the hands of the consumer. Depending on how much people read on these devices, there could be a fantastic environmental benefit because of the, the paper that hasn't got to be manufactured. Now, Professor Seringas, do you really think that a lot of people will rush to the shops to buy paper substitute products? I think there is a number of interesting applications that might convince people to rush to the shops and buy one. If you imagine, for example, that you travel a lot around the world, but you still would like to read your Cambridge Evening News when you are somewhere in Singapore or wherever you are, you could download your newspaper from the internet and display it on this flexible display. And that is clearly an application that some people might find attractive. That was Professor Henning Siringaus talking to Azzy Kateri at the Cavendish Labs here in Cambridge about a revolutionary design for reading. I certainly think it'd be lovely to have uh, take your newspaper around the world with you because I do a bit of travelling myself. But maybe it would be the end of the crossword, unless, of course, you've got a wipe-off pen. I'd be disappointed because I do like the crossword. I'm struggling with the Telegraph one, cryptic one. This way. I've done half of it and I can't do the rest. Anyway, it is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. We're talking about smart materials this week and if you'd like to have any questions answered or make any comments or just want to say hi, email us chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. And this is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. And now joining us we have Paul Fowler on the line. He's from the Biocomposite Centre at Bangor University. Paul specialises in the design and study of biocomposite materials. That's things like bioplastics and bioresins. And he's helping companies across the globe try and practice greener technology. So, Paul, what exactly is a biocomposite material? Chris, a biocomposite material is a, a material which consists of two components, a, um, a matrix and a... Um, and a fibre reinforcement. Now, in the, 
In the biocomposite case, we look for the fibre reinforcement and ideally the matrix both to be derived from natural materials. Now, the, the stats are that one trillion plastic bags get made all around the world every year, and most of them probably end up in landfills. Are bioplastics something that could replace those plastic bags and therefore will break down in the environment and be better? Bioplastics would, would certainly go some way towards, towards um, uh, remediating some of the problems of, of uh, plastics in the environment. Um, the issue around plastic bags is, uh, is a contentious one, and uh, there's, a, there's a school of thought that perhaps says that um, biodegradability isn't necessarily the way to go with, um, with plastic bags. Um, why not? Well, I'm thinking in terms of um, the biodegradability of, of, of a plastic and its, uh, and its inclusion then into landfill, where it may not necessarily biodegrade in an, in an aerobic fashion, but in an anaerobic fashion. And that makes methane, case, presumably. In which, case it would make, in which case it would make methane, yes. So the whole, the whole issue of biodegradability may, in fact, be a red herring, unless, of course, the application in which you're putting material to um, actually demands biodegradability. Paul, I've got an email here from Lizzie Jones, and she um, points out a particular issue, which is these, we're getting a bit more of these potato sort of starch-based packaging and cups mm. and things, and wondering what to do with them. And you, you, know, you mentioned sort of maybe putting them into landfill isn't going to be the best thing, but can, can we compost them at home? I mean, our, our curbside collections say very clearly not to put these plastics into our, you know, the compostable waste that they can collect. They certainly do that here in Cambridge. But could we do that at home? Well, certainly, I think, I think home composting is, is, is one way that, um, that packaging materials is going. And uh, certainly the starch-based materials uh, ought to um, home compost, particularly if you, if you manage your compost heap in, a, in, a, um, in, a, in quite an active way, ensure that you turn the compost and, uh, and, and perhaps uh, keep, it, keep it reasonably well, uh, well topped up with, uh, with um, uh, green matter as well. It, and I'm also quite um, intrigued as to why it doesn't work in the, these kind of industrial composters that they collect from our curbside. Do you have any idea why they say don't put them in your brown bags? Well, I guess I guess it's a, a, a question of, of, of what ultimately happens to the to the material which is which is going and, ha- and how it's segregated. Um, it's, it's a question of, of really being absolutely aware of, uh, of of what the material is made from and then its ultimate degrade- its ultimate degradation fate. And Paul, if we could just hit the sort of cut to the chase on what exactly bioplastics are, how they do, how they work, and how we make them, how can you make something plastic out of a potato? Well, the uh, the um, the active component, of course, is of of a, of a potato is a, is a starch. So it's a starch that uh, that is, is is rendered thermoplastic, and that's typically by adding something uh, like a plasticizer and then the, the processing of the starch on to make a to make a film. So the starch is the key polymer, which is uh, which is then transformed to make a, a plastic film. So what exactly is going on with that plasticizer to make these starch molecules, which are potato-like, into something plastic and stretchy and flexible? Well, what, what is happening is that um, the, uh, the, the starch granules uh, are being destructured by, um, by applying mechanical and, and heat um, forces to them. Uh, and in the presence, presence of a plasticizer, and that plasticizer may be, may be water, the... Um, uh, the, the individual molecules are becoming sort of flexibilized. The, the, plastic, the plasticizers are sliding between them to, uh, to enable the, the material to become flexible and film-like. And just very briefly, Paul, what could we do with this material? What sorts of applications might it have? Well, uh, biodegradable plastics, as, as, you, as, you are, as you're well aware, are seeing uh, utility in, in food packaging applications, um, in, in carry-by applications. 
but there's no reason why a thermoplastic material couldn't be uh, injection moldable or thermoformed into things like um, uh, uh, caps for uh, um, products such as deodorants or, or hairspray. Um, and the, and the uh, thermoformed things will, will form trays for packaging meat or vegetables. And there's no uh, danger, pressure. and there's no danger, Paul, that my car bumper will be dissolving when I put it in the car wash. <laughs> well, that's a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting question, Chris, but I, there's, there's lots of scope for modifying starches to make them less biodegradable so that you, you can actually tailor the life of the product, if you, if you will, by, um, by doing some modifications with other biomaterials to, uh, to prevent them being quite so biodegradable as they, as they first be. So. so that's quite a relief. Thank you very much. That was Paul Fowler, and he's at the University of Bangor. Thanks, Paul. Now, new materials are not only being developed for companies to help clean up their acts, but also in the development of medical treatments. Ruth Cameron and Serena Best from the Centre for Medical Materials here at uh, University of Cambridge spoke to Chris earlier about how they are using ceramics and polymers to help mend broken bones. Well, what we're doing is to uh, develop materials that are designed to replace body tissue, such as bone, after certain medical situations. So, for example, if you've had a tumour or if you've had an accident and you've broken bone, you may need to have bone replacement material to reinforce the sort of the bone that you've got, you've got left. And, and to make it heal up better and faster, I should think. Exactly, yes. And, and Serena, what sorts of materials are you developing to make that happen? Well, we're looking at the materials that are available at the moment and so most of the hip implants for example are made of metals what we find is that those materials are actually too stiff so they don't flex quite as well as the the bone does so what we're trying to do is to actually have a look at the the structure and the properties of bone and try and find some materials that we could replace those uh, metals with to make them uh, behave in a more similar manner and more chemically similar um, so you can get a a direct chemical bond between the bone and the implants. And what sorts of materials are you exploring? We're interested in ceramics and uh, strangely although ceramics make people think about teacups and flower pots and things the mineral part of your bone uh, is a a calcium phosphate and if you synthesise that chemically and uh, if you then heat treat it that will turn it into a ceramic. Uh, but what we're interested in is using ceramics that are as similar as possible to the mineral component of bone. But we're also interested in using polymers, and Ruth knows a lot more about the polymer side than me. And Ruth, what, what sorts of polymers do you use then? Well, there, there are a range of options, but w- one of the strategies we use is to take a polymer that would be degradable within the body. So uh, once you put it in the body and it gets wet, it breaks down into its component parts, uh, and you can choose that such that it would be something the body is, is happy with dealing with. So and it won't irritate the body having that in there? Exactly, yes. You, you and, and what does the breaking down? Simply by getting it wet with a lot of the polymers that we use so that uh, there's a chemical reaction that happens and um, the the polymers, which are long string-like molecules, actually break down into much smaller molecules um, with that reaction and you can get the body to start to take over the function of your original implants. And you can control how how long... It takes for that to happen, presumably. Yes, I mean, that there are uh, parameters that you can adjust and there, there are different timescales that are appropriate for different applications. And what sorts of polymers are you using? 
Well, one example is polylactic acid, which is lots of repeating units of, of lactic acid. And when that get, gets wet slowly over, uh, over weeks and months and years, it breaks down into to lactic acid. And lactic acid is something the body has already. It's it, when you run very hard and you get a stitch, that's a, a build-up of lactic acid. So, so it should be very biocompatible. The body shouldn't argue with it being there. But exactly. how, how are you hoping it will help the body by putting this stuff in? Well, the idea is that it can give you a really strong mechanical support uh, initially, but then after a period of time, uh, you're trying to stimulate the body to create its own new natural healthy tissue. Can you, for instance, embed cells in there and put those in, or could you embed factors that would make cells grow more and therefore heal better in in the polymers as well? Well, both of those are strategies that you can take. So you can put in drugs that will be released slowly as the polymer degrades, as as the material breaks down and you're getting them in exactly the right place to be stimulating new tissue. But um, the idea of tissue engineering, where you you create a scaffold of degradable polymer and you put cells into it, is also an idea that uh, we use as well. And what sorts of body bits could you make to do this? Well, often we're just replacing spaces in in the body or or you're trying to approach a a particular site in the body. So we're not out to make entire new organs or entire new uh, bones, but but really kind of repair repair situations. And Serena, presumably your ceramics don't get eaten away in the same way as the polymers that Ruth's been talking about. Well, some of the ceramics do, actually. Um, There's a whole family of um, calcium phosphates, which are... Um, so your your bone mineral is basically a, a calcium phosphate, and the one that's most similar to it is one called hydroxyapatite. And the around that hydroxyapatite formula, there are other calcium phosphates, and um, depending on the number of calcium atoms in relation to the number of phosphorus atoms, then uh, as you get fewer and fewer calcium atoms, then the material becomes much, much more biodegradable. So what people sometimes want to do, uh, just as Ruth has been describing, is to put something into the body which will serve a function and then it will disappear with time. Other times we just want to put a material into the body which will do its job but uh, actually stay there with the, the bone having grown into it. So if I had a broken leg, for example, you could, and I had a bit of bone that was splintered and had to be removed, you could make a model bone with your ceramics, put that in and it would act as a template for new bone growth? That would be an ideal situation. One of the slight problems that we have with these materials is that their mechanical properties are not great. So um, there there are many ceramic materials which we know are very, very strong, but the calcium phosphates are a bit like chalk, if you like. They're they're a little bit brittle and they're not particularly strong in in tension and so what we're more likely to do with these materials is to produce little granules and so the granules are used to fill defects so for example we use them to help people in spinal fusion so uh, sticking two vertebrae together and the uh, little granules can be packed either side of the vertebrae and you might need to put some uh, metal work in as well to, to hold everything in place or you might use them at the end of the hole that's been created uh, when somebody's had a hip replacement operation. If they, if they have to have that hip implant removed, then a big hole's left behind. And so we might pack the granules in to, to fill up those spaces. And, and is there any grounds, Ruth, for combining 
uh, a polymer with a ceramic to sort of mix the two technologies together. Absolutely, and this is where uh, a lot of our research is, is going on at the moment. So you can, you can get the benefits of both worlds. As, as Serena has said, that the uh, ceramics tend to be very brittle on their own. It's, it's like putting a teacup into, your, into your, your body. You can't expect it to be load-bearing. So if you can add the nice, tough properties of a polymer to that, then um, you, you can get uh, mechanical properties that are right. You can also get something that is resorbable over a period of time and you can get the bioactivity from the, choosing the right ceramic. So there's never been a better time to grow old then? I guess so, yeah. Good news indeed. That was Dr Serena Best and Dr Ruth Cameron from the Centre for Medical Materials at the University of Cambridge talking to Chris about new materials to replace the broken bits in our bodies. Thanks, Helen. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. Time now for this week's Question of the Week. And Diana's gone all nautical to find out about the sounds of the sea. Hi there and welcome to the Naked Scientist Question of the Week, where we'll be listening to some very small white horses. I'm here from Canberra in Australia and I've been wondering for a long time, why is it when you put a shell from the ocean up to your ear that it sounds like the ocean inside the shell? When we look into a shell, we can't see force five waves hitting the sides and we don't tend to get blue whales jumping out of the ends. So why can we hear it? My name is Matthew Mason. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Physiology, Development and Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. I think the answer to the question about the shell involves the shell acting as something called a Helmholtz resonator. Now, a simple form of Helmholtz resonator would be something like an empty wine bottle. You have a contained volume of air, which is connected to the outside world through the neck of the bottle. Now, we're familiar with the idea that if you blow across the neck of a wine bottle, you hear a certain tone, and different sizes and shapes of wine bottles will produce different sounds. Well, if you hold a shell to your ear, the shell is exposed to background noise from the environment around you. Now, there's always noise wherever you are in the world, uh, and even your ear can produce background noise itself through the blood passing through the blood vessels within the ear. Well, as a Helmholtz resonator, what the shell is doing is it's selectively amplifying some of the frequencies in that background noise relative to the others. The larger the shell, the lower the frequencies you would tend to hear, so it would sound uh, deeper, more bass. It could be any kind of solid, hollow body, uh, for example, a coffee cup. So you can try this yourself if you tip out all of the coffee first, hold it next to your ear, but you must leave a little gap between the cup uh, and your head in order to hear something. Now, if you try this and you uh, rattle your chair uh, or wander around a little bit, what you might find is that um, some of the things that you do sound particularly loud to you uh, in that ear. And those are the frequencies which are being particularly exaggerated by the Helmholtz resonator. As to how long it would last, because the shell itself is not making the noise, the noise is coming from uh, the background environment around you, it would carry on forever or at least until your hearing went at those particular frequencies. The noise we're hearing is an amplified background noise that can be created by any partially enclosed vessel. There has to be a gap for the sound waves to enter, and once inside, they bounce around the walls of the container, some reinforcing each other, before they're picked up by your ear. There's also the possibility that your ear actually generates the noise from blood flow, and that this is also amplified by the shell. Next week, instead of generating noise, we're smelling... This is Ellen Kirkendall in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I want to know if humans have a functioning Jacobson's organ. I've heard several different opinions on this matter. Other animals have a Jacobson's organ, but how similar are we to birds in terms of life expectancy? Hello, I'm Mike from Leeds. 
I've heard that all mammals, except humans, live the same number of heartbeats, about one and a half trillion. However, my blue and gold macaw has a resting heartbeat ten times mine, and a life expectancy of 80 years. In other words, roughly equivalent to an elephant or large whale. Why is that? What's different about the avian heart that gives it such a long life? Can humans smell what sex other humans are? And are we limited to a set number of heartbeats? Send your questions and answers to me at questionoftheweekatthenakedscientist.com. That's it for this week. Back to the studio. Thanks, Diana. So I'm a little bit sad to know that seashells are not actually giving us the sound of the sea. Um, but we also had another email from Templeton who had just about the same answer as well. So thank you very much for that. But if you think you know any of the answers to those other questions that Diana was telling us, or if you have any questions you'd like to ask, then do send us an email. And the address is question of the week at thenakedscientists.com. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. And an uncomfortable thought, Andy has texted in from Harwich to say, replacement paper products, does this mean we'll soon be seeing plastic loo roll? Well, I certainly hope not, although I have to, I have used uh, some product that was quite similar to that in the past, so no more. Not very effective. Now it's time to go back to Ben and Dave to find out if the kids at King Edward's Grammar School in Chelmsford have protected themselves from a soaking using nothing but a handkerchief. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We've still got a glass here completely full of water with a bit of handkerchief stretched across the top. We're still here in kegs with Alex and with Richard. Now, Alex, you were feeling pretty nervous about this earlier. Are you feeling any better now? No. And Richard, what what do you think is going to happen? No, it's going to get drenched. Basically, Dave, everyone thinks all the water is going to come out and this will have just been an excuse to soak somebody. What's going on? Well, there's one way to find out. Would you like to turn that glass upside down, Richard? So you quickly turn the glass upside down over Alex's head. Hold on. Um, nothing's coming out. So, Richard, is he staying dry? Oh, I think so. And why do you think that might be? Um, because the handkerchief kind of absorbs all the water. So, Dave, is the cotton in the handkerchief soaking up all the water? Well, the handkerchief is much smaller than the water in the glass, so it can't be soaking it all up. What I'd like you to do is another experiment. I want to breathe it over the top of the sink. I, then I want you to loosen that handkerchief. So what's going on while you loosen it, Richard? Well, I think that there's a pressure inside, and then as the air gets in, the water's then able to come out. Is that what's going on, Dave? It's all to do with the air getting into the glass. So I'm going to do it again to have a look at what's happening. So I'll fill up the glass of water. Stretch the piece of fabric over the top. I'm going to turn it upside down. OK, so nothing's leaking out now. If the water gets out, it's going to leave a space, and something's got to fill up that space. Now, the obvious thing which normally fills up space around us is air. So at the moment, the air obviously can't get in. The reason for that is if you look at the fabric, it's got lots of pieces of thread with very small holes in between. So for the air to get in there, it's going to have to get through those small holes. And if water's on the other side, it's basically going to be like blowing a bubble. Now, actually, blowing bubbles is quite difficult. If you try blowing a bubble, the film sort of pushes back against you. So it's a bit like when you've got one of those little bubble machines that you dip in washing up liquid or something, and you, and you blow through it. But if you blow really gently, you can see it bowing out and starting to be a bubble. And then when you let go, it'll kind of snap back in and be flat again. Yeah, that's right. There's a surface tension which is doing that. And so because the holes are so small, it's quite hard for the air to get in. So it's like blowing lots and lots of tiny bubbles instead of if you didn't have the handkerchief there and you just turned it upside down, it's like just one big bubble going into the glass and pushing all the water out. 
Yeah, because blowing one big bubble is immensely easier than thousands of small ones. It's much easier for the air to get in if there's no fabric on it. So if you stretch it out flat on the top and turn it upside down, no water comes out. But if you gently tip the glass onto its side, what's happening now is because the water at the bottom is under quite a lot of pressure, there's more water over the top of it, that really wants to get out. So that actually reduces the pressure inside the glass. And so at the top, the water's actually at negative pressure. It's being sucked in because the water's getting pushed out at the bottom by gravity. And that's enough to blow the bubbles and let the air in. And so the air can get in, the water can get out, and it leaks. So now all the water that's on the side of the glass that's at the bottom uh, is being pushed on by all the water that's above it, and that sort of really wants to come out because of that pressure. But that means that there's sort of a sucking effect on the top. And so because the air can come in, the water can get out, and that's why it leaks. Yeah, pretty much. So what did you think of that? I thought it was quite unusual, the way when it was only half turned over halfway that the water came out, but when it turned over full, you would expect more water to come out, but in fact none came out. Did you expect today when you came into school that somebody would be holding a full glass of water above your head? No. And did you expect that if you did, you'd get wet? Yes. So you're going to show other people? Yes, I'm going to threaten my mum with it. Fantastic. Well, that's all we have time for on Kitchen Science this week. So from everyone here at Kegs, from Dave Ansell... Goodbye. And from Alex... Bye. And from Richard... Bye. And from myself, goodbye. Thanks, guys. Well, I'm really glad that no one got soaked because I think then Ben and Dave may well have been banned from every high school in the, in the county and all around. So that's great. Thanks, guys. And it may seem a bit silly to try and protect yourself from getting soaked um, with just a handkerchief, but it's actually what those Gore-Tex waterproof um, coats work in a really similar way. They're made up of material with really fine holes that repel water. So instead of bubbles of air having to work against surface tension, like with the handkerchief, water droplets find it almost impossible to push through the tiny holes. So it is proof it is it's proof to liquid water but water vapor which has no surface tension can easily get through so that's why it's breathable and we don't get all sticky and uh, sweaty inside our water um, our breathable coats which is a jolly good thing if you're walking up a very tall mountain Thank you, Helen. Now, talking of getting wet and raining and waterproofing and things, we had this email last week from Kieran Harford, who's in Dublin, and said, my daughter came home from school and said that if you run in the rain, you can end up getting wetter. So we had this fierce debate in the show last week about whether or not you should run in the rain to stay dry, and we've had pretty vigorous response. Yeah, we've had a huge response, actually, and all sorts of different ideas. Um Someone pointed out that you might be more likely to fall over when you're running, so you would then maybe get even wetter. So <laughs> something that would happen to me is I'd like to know if I cycle quicker, will I also get wetter? But the bottom line seems to be the faster you go in the rain, the drier you are, assuming the rain's coming from above. And that's because Ronald Menzies um, from the US sent me a wonderful webpage, Doug Cragen's physics page, in which there's actually a calculator, Helen. I've got it here. I've put my values in. If I stroll along, in fact, if I jog at two metres a second over a 200-metre dash, okay, and the rain's coming down about five metres a second, it tells me that 30.4 millilitres of rain will have landed on me. And if I go slightly slower, if I go at a strolling pace... Oops... Uh, then it tells me I've got 27 millilitres of water. So, yes, the bottom line is you'll get drier if you run in the rain, assuming it's coming from above. And that's so exactly that's what we had from all sorts of people who wrote in. So thank you to everyone who had an answer to that question. And thank you to everyone who has been listening to us this week, having us in your cars, ears and living rooms. We're back next week at the same time and exploring the science of, duh, 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 wait for it, the science of beer and brewing. Fantastic. So if you have any brewing-related questions, send them to us, chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a very nice week. See you next time. 
The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.